It might have seemed, and I think as most Christmas services do, that we end up just hitting the greatest hits. Uh, I seem to have that feeling. (laughs) Oftentimes, every Christmas, we end up hitting the greatest hits of Scripture and of our hymn books. We go to the same particular passages, we go to the same particular hymns, and we sing them with all the gusto. And I think it's because, like other things that we are blessed with in this life, we only break them out in a couple, for a couple of weeks. It's like college football. We love it so much because it's only around for a couple of weeks, and then it's gone. It's very sad. <laughs> one of my other greatest hits, though, it's one that I haven't talked a lot about, but it's one that I wanted to sort of save for this hour. It is Charles Dickens's famous tale, A Christmas Carol, which I think is almost as synonymous with Christmas as is Santa Claus or perhaps any of the other Christmas crooners by Mariah Carey or Frank Sinatra. Maybe you're familiar with this story. A Christmas Carol is one that has been adapted some umpteen times. Whether you've seen the version with General Patton playing the familiar Ebenezer Scrooge, or maybe you've seen the version with Patrick Stewart, or maybe you've seen the version with Sir Michael Caine, or maybe you've seen the version with Bugs Bunny, or Mickey Mouse, or Mr. Magoo, and the list goes on. It's a story that is timeless. But regardless of who assumes the role of the old and the crotchety Ebenezer Scrooge, the same essential story, I think, is told every single time in which you, the viewer, or you, the reader, of whatever version of the story you're enjoying, you're gleaning from, I would say, one of the best redemption stories the world has ever seen. Even if you're familiar with the story, you might want a refresher. At the beginning of the story, A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer, as you know, perhaps, is a greedy miser, a penny pincher who uh, famously hates Christmas. When his nephew comes into his business and starts celebrating and saying, Merry Christmas, what are his words? Bah humbug, right? He is very much a Scrooge, and in fact, the word Scrooge very much means Ebenezer Scrooge, the one who has a crotchety sense of the holiday season. He's only concerned with one thing. He's concerned with the expansion and perhaps we could say the preservation of his business, the the way he conducts his life. He is only concerned, he is only focused on his bank account, a concern which, as you learn throughout the tale, that has cost him friends, has cost him family, has cost him love, and we might even say has cost him a life. Ebenezer is a tragic tale. It's a tragic story in which you are seeing all of these decisions come about in which we see a man who has lived a very miserable life. His fortunes change, uh, as you might know, in the course of a single night as he is visited by a series of spirits. His old friend who has been in the grave for seven years, Jacob Marley, comes and visits him. From the grave, and he says, You will yet be visited by three more ghosts the ghosts of Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas future, who proceed to show Ebenezer Scrooge just what a life of being a miser really buys you. All of those hours spent counting his coins, all of those hours spent making sure he is the one who is always successful and coming out on top, what does it get him? Well, these spirits show him. 
All he can buy is a dingy and pitiful existence that stifles the joy out of all those who are around him. Indeed, they show him how suffocating it is to be a Scrooge. Which, in the end, the last apparition, the ghost of Christmas future, shows him an image. An image he would rather not see. It's an image of his tombstone that have the words etched in them, Ebenezer. The truly sad fact of this image of himself passing into the grave is that no one is there to miss him. No one is there to mourn him. He dies seemingly non, uh, having not existed at all. And this stirs Ebenezer to his core. This stirs Ebenezer Scrooge and brings him to his knees. And in Charles Dickens' original tale, he lets out this confession. He says to that spirit, Spirit, hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. And I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. It's a prayer of repentance for all intents and purposes. And with those words, he wakes up. And instead of clutching his hands, he finds out that he's clutching his bedpost. And he wakes up from this very ghostly nightmare that he has been experiencing. He's sparked Sparked to change his life, and indeed it takes hold. Ebenezer Scrooge has come out of this nightmare, a very changed man. He goes from, we could say, being a Scrooge to, as St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, being a cheerful giver. <laughs> in fact, it's a story, as I've been reflecting on it in these last several days, that I find very reminiscent of the story of Zacchaeus, a man who was very miserly, very concerned about his own business, who in the end ends up being a very cheerful, or we could say a very hilarious giver, who gives fourfold beyond what was required. Indeed, Dickens says of Scrooge that Scrooge was better than his word. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world ever had ever seen. It's a story of redemption. A story of someone coming to the end of themselves. In the midnight of the soul, we might say, who sees what his life has actually bought him. And I think what's resonating about Scrooge's redemption, though, is just what it means. That even, we could say, the 11th hour, there is hope for those that, yes, are like Mr. Old Scrooge. And perhaps my fondness for the story is because of my family's tradition of watching the story unfold every Christmas Eve. In fact, when I was growing up, we would probably be watching it about right now. We would be watching, yes, the George C. Scott version, the one which stars General Patton as old crotchety Ebenezer Scrooge. And every time the same story is told and every time I'm impacted by what he says and how he repents and how he changes. However, I would submit to you that an even better redemption story than good old Ebenezer Scrooge exists for us right here in the text that we read. Luke chapter 2. Indeed, as we said earlier, it's one of the most famous tales like A Christmas Carol. It's so familiar around Christmas time. 
We break out Luke chapter 2 on December 1st and we read it seemingly constantly until December 26th. And yet, I think we often miss miss another layer of the story that's always there and always going on. As the evangelist Luke here writes and he tells the story of Jesus' birth, he is sure to mention his birthplace in that very pivotal verse, which we often gloss over in verse number 4. He says, And Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. This detail, of course, is not innocuous. He's very much making a point that this Bethlehem, that this now Jesus is being born, is the Bethlehem that was prophesied of all the way back in Micah chapter 5. In fact, when the prophet Micah reads or makes that proclamation some 700 years before this exact moment, we see now what is happening. That through the course of this taxation and the course of these parents traveling to the city, all things are fulfilled. God's word is accomplished, but yet I think there's even more that's going on in this particular verse. Because as it says in verse number 7, and she brought forth her firstborn son. You see, at the birth of Jesus, even that little town experienced a redemption of its own. You see, Bethlehem Ephrata was a city, yet yes, even though it hailed, was hailed as the city of the great King David's birth, it did not have the best of reputations, to put it mildly. In fact, If you read Judges chapter 19, which I invite you to do, and I'm not quite daring enough to read it on Christmas Eve. But if you read Judges chapter 19, you will be greeted with one of the most vile chapters in all of the Bible. It's a story that is deeply, deeply, I would say, disturbing. It's one of those ones that you read it and you almost feel like you need to have a shower after reading it. It's one of those chapters in the Bible that you question whether it should be in God's holy word at all. Complete with promiscuous priests and unfaithful concubines and sadistically violent men. The whole chapter is one scene after another which shows and demonstrates the great depths of man's depravity. And it epitomizes that which is indicative of the human heart. That man's heart is the problem. Man's heart is vile. Man's heart is very much filled with sin. And in fact, the events of chapter 19 of the book of Judges end up sparking a civil war amongst the tribes. It's a dark hour of Israel's history. And to think that it is all traced back to this Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrata, that little town. That little town in Galilee that didn't really have much going for it. The town that we often think of as simple and precious and quaint and innocent is not so innocent after all. It has a very sullied and sordid backstory. And yet... We read this chapter, we read Luke chapter 2, and we are told that here is the birthplace of God. That God's only begotten Son was born here in Bethlehem. Yes, fulfilling God's word, but yes, also undoing the sullied past of that little town. Now instead of being a little city that we know of, 
For all of those stained and unmentionable travesties and those great and grievous sins that we can read of, it remains a town that we know of as the birthplace of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Again, what were the angel's words? Verse number 10. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. She shall find this babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. In this moment, we could say that Bethlehem is essentially remade. It is having its story rewritten, yes, even by this unassuming and quiet incarnation of its Savior. This was the first flash of light that Zechariah speaks of at the end of Luke chapter 1 that flashed on those who sit in darkness. Tells us of this Savior, this Christ, this Lord, this Messiah, this King of all things who has come and has incarnated himself in flesh like ours to undo our past. Indeed, that's what he has done for all of us here this evening. Maybe you've never thought of the Nativity story in this manner before. But to think of it this way. That when Christ comes to this earth in the form of an infant, he comes to undo what sinful man has done. He comes to rewrite our stories. He comes to live and to die on behalf of those who deserved something else. His mission in the incarnation ultimately as we can sing and as we can say throughout all of scriptures is ultimately to die the death we deserve. But also he came to live, live perfectly and righteously as it says in Matthew chapter 3, 15 to fulfill all righteousness. And yes, by living and dying and rising in perfection, we who repent and believe, we who by faith now claim this Christ as our own find our perfection in him. Jesus rewrites our stories. What does Paul say in the book of Colossians? One of the best verses in all of scripture, if there can be a best. That Jesus himself, this one, the firstborn of all creation, as he says in Colossians chapter 1. The preeminent one through whom all things consist. What has he done? Colossians 2.14, he has come to blot out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. He blots out our old stories, stories that were only conditioned by law, that were conditioned by failure, that were conditioned and only known by sin. Those stories that we could not erase, he has done away with. He has blotted out. Those pasts that we have lived, those days that we have experienced, that we think are etched in granite stone like Ebenezer. He is the one who can melt that all away in the white hot grace of his cross. And such is what he does. Such is why he took on flesh in the first place. 
You see, I have come to, I think, a renewed appreciation for the Christmas story. Yes, it's a timeless tale. It's a classic. It's a hit. But it's one that continually and forever will rewrite our own stories. It begins right here with a cradle. And it continues with a cross. And it continues with an empty tomb. Those are the elements of God's story. This is a timeless, transcendent story in which he tells us how he swallows our paths that are filled with filth and rebellion and violence and vice and and selfishness and pride. How he swallows that with his love. Perhaps you have a backstory you would rather forget. You have a past that you have spent countless years Trying to press down. Trying to pretend has not ever been lived. Perhaps you can think of a yesterday you wish you could reverse. A word you could unsay. A word you could grab back into your mouth and not have go out into the universe. An image that you could unsee. A hurt you could undo. A life you could unbreak. Perhaps there are moments in your life that you would just die to erase. The good news is that someone has done that already. It's the Savior, Jesus Christ. He has died already to erase your past. And the writer the beloved Robert Capon. He made up a word in this next quote I'm going to give you. But if you roll with it, you can make up words sometimes. He says this. It's one quote that I will never get away from. That Jesus takes all of the badness of sin down into the forgettery of his death and offers to the Father only what is held in the memory of his resurrection. This is how he rewrites our stories. He takes on swallows all of our shame, all of our misfortune, all of our rebellion, all of our pride. And he says, it is mine. And he forgives us on that cross. And now they were remembered no longer. And thus we are free to repent and believe this good news that our sins are forgotten. And the forgettery of Christ's death. This is the hope of Christmas. This is the reason we celebrate Christmas at all. You see, the hope of it and the promise of it is not only for a better tomorrow in the presence of the Lord, but also for a past that is redeemed in the sin-erasing death of the Savior. All of which now gifts us a joyful and hopeful present in the company of the redeemed. Because of Christmas you can have joy. Joy in a present that is washed in the Savior's blood. And this I think is why Christmas will always trump any other redemption story you can ever tell. Because it tells us, yes, that this God 
who can never forget, chooses not to remember. He chooses not to remember our sins. And he chooses, yes, to come down in flesh and rewrite our stories. This evening, I pray that if you haven't felt this grace, this grace of redemption, which is truly a grace of a rewritten past, Make this Christmas the one in which you can truly say glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Let us pray.